This is Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, science and society writer Eugene Linden on climate change and insurance. People are aware of climate change. They're they don't have a clue as to what is actually causing it or, or what might solve it. Total global emissions today are 60% above what they were in 1990, where they were already a problem. That's 10 billion tons of carbon in a biosphere that can only absorb 5 billion tons on an annual basis. I feel that we have the makings of a climate economic crash that would be larger than 2008 and not only that, it won't be a one-off because climate is only going to be getting worse. Welcome to Chatter. Delighted to be here. You've been writing about climate and related issues since the 1980s, but as part of your wider arc of science and, and nature and business writings on a whole number of things. And that includes several works on animal intelligence, especially mm-hmm. ape language experiments, their hope initially, and their tragedy over time. How did you first get into that? <laughs> well, after I graduated from college, um, I ended up, uh, and that's a long story, I won't go into it, but I ended up in Vietnam as an investigative journalist, and I broke a big story on fragging. Um, way back when, I think it was the first national story on it. Um, fragging was, as your listeners probably know, uh, this bizarre event of Vietnam and past wars where enlisted men would try to blow up their officers. Uh, right. Usually in warfare, it was an incompetence officer and taken out in the heat of battle. Mm-hmm. The uh, unique thing about Vietnam was many of them occurred, occurred in the rear echelons. In any event, this, this story got a lot of attention. Um, and, uh, I was invited to do books afterwards by publishers approached me and they said, do you want to write about Vietnam? And I said, no. And I said, what do you want to write about? And I said, I want to write about these experiments teaching language to chimpanzees. That's Uh, a big stretch for a publisher who has one thing in mind to suddenly (laughs) be looking at another species. They went with it. (laughs) And, um, but uh, the, the interest for me was that all of our rights in nature are predicated on this notion that we're different in kind than other creatures, and that there's no continuity between animal higher mental abilities and human higher mental abilities. Mm -hmm. And if all of a sudden apes could understand symbols, um, that sort of suggested there was continuity, which makes perfect sense in terms of natural selection and evolution, but it it blows the underpinnings out of our uh, notion of uh, nature is just some uh, stuff put there for our use. And so I thought it was a big deal. Um, And one thing leads to another, um, that book, uh, did fairly well. And I kept exploring these experiments, um, but it, it was going nowhere, um, because it's, a uniquely, uh, language and intelligence are uniquely ill-suited for empirical studies yeah. in other creatures. Um, we haven't defined them after 3000 years. There's still no consensus on what is language. There's still no consensus on what is intelligence and how do you expect, uh, an animal to demonstrate something that's a moving target, you know, and hasn't been pinned down. So fast forward about 15 years or so, more than that, 20 years or so. And um, I, I was in, I was traveling with Jane Goodall in Africa and I was doing a big piece for National Geographic. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the guys who was traveling with us that was talking about this orangutan 
who'd um, picked the lock on his cage and escaped many times before he was caught. And they ultimately found the key that uh, he'd taken between his lip and gum, piece of wire he used to pick the lock. So it occurred to me, gee, maybe animals do their best thinking if they can think when it serves their purposes. And then I wrote a book called uh, The Parrot's Lament, which did very well and led to some other things. But in any case, the animal intelligence thing is is one lobe of the, my obsession my whole career, which is, you know, how is it that this one species, you know, has been on the planet for 250,000 years, has so common come to dominate nature that it's become a geophysical force? And uh, so, and what is it in the way we look at ourselves in nature that supports that? So that was that. It's fascinating to me that in, in the time since your first book came out in these decades, we we have learned so much and yet so little. Like you said, on the language side, we, we still don't quite understand what to call animal intelligence as it applies to language. There's still questions about mimicry versus cognitive ability and all of these things. Um, and yet we've discovered that a lot of animals are doing a whole lot more of of what I would call cognitive or precognitive thinking than what we would have thought 50 years ago, whether it's dolphins or octopus, um, to the point that we've even had at least one court ruling that I know of, ruling that chimpanzees have some legal rights as as individuals. And that's that's an amazing difference from when you first started working on this. Well, I, I agree. <clears throat> and I think it was these apes, uh, these chimps and gorillas, who were the pioneers in an orangutan, um, who basically opened the door to this. And what's fascinating to me is that in the last 50 years, um, 50 years ago, scientists were completely, um, it was an outlier to suggest that there was continuity in these higher mental abilities. Yeah. Um, and what's happened is that the public today, 50 years later, is way ahead of the scientists. The scientists are catching up by approaching it from a new angle, which is higher cognitive abilities like tool use, tool making, things like that, and staying away from the language stuff, which, um, and, and so the public is right, is way ahead of the scientists in a sense of accepting that there is continuity. Mm -hmm. um, with climate change, it's exactly the opposite. The scientists are way ahead of the public in terms of accepting that uh, climate change is real and we face an absolute catastrophe unless we do something, and most of the public remains oblivious. Uh, a poll by Gallup just two years ago showed that 45% of the public felt that um, they would not face serious consequences from climate change in their lifetime. This was at a point when, of course, we're already facing serious consequences. Right. And the figures get even more interesting because they were like 17% for Republicans and um, 63 or 65%, uh, I'm not quite right on that, but mm -hmm. for Democrats. So, I mean, it was a very partisan divide. So, I mean... It, it is interesting the way in which um, uh, the paradigm shift, because right. there has been a paradigm shift in the understanding of our place in the natural order, and I, much I, to the good, I would argue. And I do, I do want to dig down primarily on, on climate change here, uh, especially your recent work on why we collectively haven't done more about climate change in the past 40 plus years and, and what we can do about it now. But that recent work does build on your other work. I remember more than a decade ago coming across your book, The Winds of Change, at some point after it came out, what, 15 or 16 years ago now? 2006, yeah. And that that <clears throat> book, one of the, the classics on climate change, 
tackled the intersections between civilizational rises and, and falls and climate. Uh, recap, if you will, your, your main ideas from that grand historical sweep. Absolutely. Well, Winds of Change was one of my many failed attempts to try and convey the issue in such a way as to arouse the public. <laughs> and um, the, uh, it, what I thought was that only recently in the last couple of decades have we had the granularity of data to reconstruct past climates to actually correlate weather with a particular historical event. And so climate history, pioneered by a British uh, uh, historian, H.H. Lamb, um, is a relatively new field. Now, Lamb used tree rings, which can only go back so long in other records, and it's also regional climate, it's not global climate. Um, but now we can reconstruct with some accuracy uh, climate going back deep into the past. Um, and a bunch of historians began looking at some of these past events through the lens of climate. And uh, uh, let's see, uh, Harvey Weinstein at Yale was looking at the fall of the Acadians, which occurred at the time of a 300-year drought. Um, then uh, an anthropologist, Lisa Lucero, was looking at the role, and many other cl uh, climate historians looking at climate with the fall of the Mayans. There are like dozens and dozens of theories about the fall of the Mayans, but it actually coincided with uh, droughts. In the, there was an enormous drought, killed off the Anasazi as well and other tribes. It also, there were droughts in the Sahel, and it was a global event in, in China at the same time. And so what you see, though, is that climate has been this serial killer of civilizations down through the ages. Um, and I thought putting it in that context, we could see how we're vulnerable to it as well, because um, up until the, the last few decades, uh, climate has been as good as it gets uh, for uh, humanity. I mean, we expanded from some 5 million 13,000 years ago to 7.8 billion today. And it's there have been glitches, but nothing with the amplitude until now of the glitches that occurred in past times. One of the ironies of climate, I think, is that climate change actually helped create humanity because periods of cooling and drying in the drought, the spe specialists died off, including our ancestors, and the generalists survived. And so periods of great grain brain growth occurred during periods of climate upheaval. Once we had our big brain, however, we were addicted to the climate that uh, this, this wonderful sweet spot, as uh, uh, one climatologist called it, Richard Alley, of uh, where the orbital dynamics that control climate on the long term were ideal for us uh, agriculture and expanding agriculture, which makes it all the more insane that we are sort of changing the climate recipe to something which if uh, to use this, uh, um, the Paris Agreement, if even if all countries adhered to it, we'd still face a global warming of 2.7 to 3.7 degrees Celsius yeah. by 2100. To put that in perspective, the last time the Earth was that warm was before the ice ages began 2.7 million years ago. Mm. And there was plenty of life back then, but there weren't any humans, and there certainly wasn't any agriculture. And it, an open question whether a three-degree warming Celsius from now, um, we could have agriculture to support 7.8 billion people alive today, much less the two billion or more that's going to be born between now and then. Right. You, you started that by saying that the winds of change was your attempt to communicate in a different way some of these things that you'd been writing about 
and trying to get the people's attention and leaders' attention on it. And and I wonder, looking back at it, why you feel it, it didn't take hold more, not, not just your particular book, but the whole concept at that point of looking at the deep past and saying, warning here, uh, civilizations have fallen because of this. Some of them among the most advanced civilizations of their time, you really need to pay attention. Is it because too many people hear about past civilizations and just think, yeah, the Roman Empire rises and falls, civilizations rise and fall, it's going to happen. I don't need to understand the climate change part of it. Do you think some of it is almost just history fatigue about hearing about past civilizations and not wanting to care about the origins of their falls? Um, I think the audience that was open to the message on climate change um, accepted that, but that's always been the case. The problem, the fundamental problem, uh, well, let's drop back a bit of it. That same year that I came out, um, Inconvenient Truth came out um, and sucked all the air from the room. And of course, uh, and then Elizabeth Colbert's uh, whatever it was, uh, Cliff Notes from a Catastrophe, uh, her book on climate change came out. There was a lot of press about climate change, and we got a lot of attention, Gore getting the most. Of course. And a lot of politicization as a result. That's what I was getting to. Yeah. In, 19, in the late 90s, after the Clinton impeachment, and I got, I'm taking this from uh, pollsters like Tony Louisewitz, um, the issue became politicized. Once an issue becomes politicized, the the facts don't matter, the messenger matters. And if the messenger is illegitimate, um, then the facts don't matter. And there's no better case of this than what has happened in the last couple of years than with COVID. Yeah. I mean, people are dying of COVID and saying it's not real. Then if you can actually risk your life for, <laughs> because you think the messenger is an illegitimate messenger, why are you gonna pay attention to what somebody is saying about climate change and its role in the rise and fall of civilizations? Right on. One of the great counterfactuals in this in this area is what if instead of Al Gore writing an inconvenient truth, it would have been, let's say, Jack Kemp or, or somebody else. And you would have seen there are many issues, perhaps, with, with that being a real counterfactual possibility. But the politicization side, the fact that it was a, a partisan Democrat being associated with this at a time of increasing partisanization and negative partisanship, it just makes you wonder if it had been a a prominent Republican who who did understand what was happening and was willing to talk about it, uh, certainly would not have played out the same way. I'm not sure the other dynamics that we'll be talking about would have necessarily been different, but it certainly would have been a missed opportunity. Well, I, I think um, were there not a fossil fuel industry, the counterfactual could have happened um, because there's certainly Republicans who understand the issue. Um, I think one of the... the uh, in my book, Fire and Flood, I mean, that one, I say the battle was lost in the 90s. Um, <clears throat> and I say that for a number of reasons, because uh, back when we first, the issue first arose in 1988, uh, when Jim Hansen talked to the Senate, and it was 100 degrees everywhere and um, broke all these records and everybody was sweltering. Um, people were open. And my iconic example of this is George H.W. Bush. Um, who, uh, one, he, he campaigned as the environmental president, um, and I inadvertently helped him on that because I wrote this piece for time on 
Dukakis's failure on Boston Harbor. And the right. next thing you know, Bush is on a boat in Boston Harbor. Yep. Um, but then he said, he famously said, for those who were concerned about the greenhouse effect, there is something called the White House effect. And I am going to, in my first term in office, have a conference on climate change, global warming. Well, sometime between when he talked about the greenhouse effect the, and his White House conference, the lobbyist effect came into play. And that conference went ahead, um, ultimately, but it, no one was allowed to mention global warming. And it would be like having a, conf a conference on pandemics and not being allowed to talk about COVID. Right. Uh, it was insane. So what you saw was the power of that fossil fuel and business lobby. It wasn't mm -hmm. just fossil fuel because... Um, for business, non-fossil fuel businesses, the, for most of the uh, last 30 years, they've seen climate change regulation as a threat to profits. Now, of course, we're seeing that sea change where yeah. they're recognizing that climate change itself is a threat to their very viability of their businesses. So what happened uh, in, I, I trace it, uh, the, the playbook has been um, challenge the science, uh, undermine the credibility of the scientists, mm -hmm. say there is no consensus, argue we need more study, and that most importantly, we have time. That playbook was developed for tobacco, fighting tobacco regulation, and then it was deployed famously with the ozone crisis. Right, right. Way back in the early 70s, they knew that ozone was going to be a threat to the uh, upper uh, ozone hole layer. 1980. One, the ozone hole, first data comes in on the ozone hole, 1981, 92. We didn't act until 1987. We look back now, Eugene, uh, that was a success story, but it wasn't a success story because the, the connection between the CFCs and the ozone was known. And there, there were years of delay before it became a quote success. You're absolutely right. It wasn't, if that kind of success story and we're all doomed because, uh, the only reason we have an ozone treaty was that the largest maker of the chemicals mm -hmm. was also had the biggest advantage in coming up with the alternatives. So once the ozone hole became incontrovertible, mm -hmm. they realized that if there was regulation, they would have the lead um, in coming up with the alternatives to the uh, CFC. Was this DuPont? Yes, this okay. is DuPont. And then secondly, at by that point, CFCs have become a commodity and they realize that the alternatives would have a higher profit margin. There's a Harvard case study, a business school's case study on this, and I wrote about it for time. But um, the difference is with climate change, virtually everything we do mm. contributes to uh, uh, yeah. carbon, uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions in the upper atmosphere. So it was going to be a vastly more complicated problem. Absolutely. You start your analysis in, in this most recent book. You, you take a more recent look at climate and society, explaining decade by decade what we have and have not accomplished since 1979. And you do start then in 1979 with the National Academy of Sciences report, a committee report that was presented to President Jimmy Carter. What did that report find and why do you start the modern climate change era at that point? Well, it was the first time that the issue got to presidential attention. That's, so that's a good starting point. Um, the, uh, and it, at that point, um, keep in mind what a radical report this was for the times, because people at that point would think it would take thousands of years to change the climate. 
that report argued that unless we take action, we will see changes by the end of the 20th century. In fact, the changes began occurring in the very next decade and became obvious in the 90s. So, I mean, they, they were spot on. Um, and uh, it, it was a bunch of pioneering scientists, uh, you know, who were pushing this. Uh, and Gus Speth, who was in the White House, was uh, one of my heroes, uh, was uh, a ch championing it as well. Um, now, Carter then started pushing for solar, as you recall, and alternatives and wind power, remember, in Altamont and all these other places. The reason was not about climate change. It was about energy independence. Right. After the uh, Arab oil embargo of uh, when was it? 73. And solar at that point, correct me if I'm wrong, but solar at that point was extraordinarily expensive compared to what it is now. But the issue the issue really was trying to make sure that the uh, oil shock that we had in the mid 70s didn't continue or get worse. We needed to have some independence and solar could contribute to that. Yeah. And uh, ironically, one of the things that Carter pushed or uh, his energy secretary pushed at the very same time we were pushing for research on solar, we were expanding our use of coal. And uh, and so, yeah. uh, you know, things get complicated at the, at the White House level. Carter, during the Carter years, the, I think the cost per watt, kilowatt hour of solar came down by much more than a factor of 10. Mm -hmm. So it showed there were plenty of gains to be had. Um, but then, of course, Carter loses and Reagan comes in and tax credits went away. All the different uh, incentives to pursue uh, uh, research on renewables went away. And uh, Phil Clapp, uh, environmentalist, late died some years back, claimed that uh, Reagan set back solar by uh, 10 years. What the, the, the fact the, the, the rocky path of renewables is one of the most interesting aspects of this story, and it ties into everything. Because let's fast forward to the early 90s, um, when all of a sudden the issue becomes uh, mainstream again. The uh, St. Louis Fed dates the industrialization of China, I think, to 1988. 1990, they used half the coal, half they had half the greenhouse emissions that we did. Um, everybody back then was talking about leapfrogging technologies. Um, you might remember that, that why do they have to recapitulate our path with fossil fuels? Why not jump to the 21st century with renewables and use that to power industrialization? Well, no frogs left. And, uh, one reason, um, is that China had the fourth largest, um, coal reserves in the world. Um, but. There are other reasons as well, but I'll get back to. But the early agreements, the Kyoto process and everything else on climate change, left China and the other developing nations out of it. Mm. Let's look at what happened since. Since 1990 to today, um, European um, U.S. emissions have grown, but at a very, very slow rate. Right. Total global emissions today are 60% above what they were in 1990 where they were already a problem. And there are two reasons for that. Well, one is population growth around the world. Um, you know, 2.5 billion people have been added since 1990. The average greenhouse gas emissions per global capita, per capita globally is four to five tons, mm. somewhere between that. That's 10 billion tons of carbon in a biosphere that can only absorb 5 billion tons on an annual basis without change. And that's on top of all the emissions that 
came before, of which we're largely responsible, by the way, right. um, but stay up there for over 100 years. So um, the problem is, is it's once they're up there, you either have to take them out or they stay there and then you keep adding to them. So China and India and global population growth have made the problem that much more daunting since then. Now, people have said um, the one reason they didn't adopt, adopt renewables is that they weren't ready um, at that point. Um, and so I don't, it's a serious argument and it's worth discussing, but I don't buy it. Um, for one thing, I, I use the analogy that it's like the football coach who shoots his star player in the leg and then benches him because he's not ready to play. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the renewables, all the renewables we have today were all being explored, not in 1990, in 1900. Mm -hmm. And the reason they were was that, um, you know, Thomas Edison was arguing for tidal power, which is now being used around the world. Stirling engine was invented in the, uh, which is a solar engine um, for generating power from solar, was invented in the early 19th century. All the wind power has been around forever. Geothermal power, the Vikings were using it a thousand years ago. And the Italians were building uh, uh, geothermal uh, in, in, insta uh, installations in the, in the 19th century. All these things, it was a veritable renaissance in terms of alternatives. And then they went into a coma for 70 years. Is that, just, is that just because of, or at least primarily because of the crazy exploration of and discovery of massive oil in the late 19th and early 20th centuries? Absolutely. That's exactly what it was. Um, something better came along. Um, at that point, people weren't concerned about emissions, although people were writing about emissions, by the way, in the year 1900 and before, causing uh, changes in climate, although they weren't, you know, uh, weren't quite sure why. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, so, uh, yes, oil sort of sucked all the air from the room. Right. And the research went into a coma for 70 years, came out of a coma briefly during the uh, Carter years, went back into a coma during the Reagan years, came out of the coma, during, you know, and so we've been back and forth. And then there's another reason why, and this gets to the heart of the matter in a way, why China didn't um, choose to leapfrog us. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that was that the U.S. and to some degree other countries were saying, do as we say, not as we do. Yeah. Here we were saying, don't use coal. And we were hell-bent for leather in, you know, in, in using coal, you know, for steel making and every other thing. Um, and so the idea that uh, had, had China taken this alternative path, again, the counterfactual, um, think of the economies of scale and think. Yeah. And the other thing is that many of the uh, alternative technologies could have become grid, uh, grid parity is the holy grail of an alternative technology, right? Yeah. It's where you're com cost competitive with, uh, with a fossil fuel. That could have happened so much sooner than it happened. It's already happened, but it could have happened a lot sooner. Real missed, real missed opportunity. Right. And you, you illuminate that in, in each decade, those missed opportunities with a really creative device that, that I appreciated, <laughs> which is looking at the, the four frames, which you call the four clocks running at different speeds right. as ways of showing the ebb and flow of progress, um, you know, usually you know, lack of progress, but the ebb and flow of progress on climate change, the first clock being just the reality of climate change itself. Right. Um, second, the scientific understanding of that and communication about that reality. 
third, public opinion, and fourth and finally, the clock of business, finance, insurance, and all of that that, that builds around it economically. Um, walk us through the 80s and the 90s, comparing and contrasting the science, the public opinion, and the business clocks, because I think one of the things I'm hoping you'll build to is the fact that in the 1990s in particular, that that final clock, the business clock, had some really interesting developments on the insurance side, but it really comes out in the contrast with what wasn't happening in the 1980s. So walk us through that a bit. How, how did these clocks illuminate the 1980s and 1990s? Absolutely. Well, you know, first, the, the clock of reality, we'll go quickly through that, which is that um, warmest years started happening regularly in the 80s. But at that point, it was unclear whether it was, you know, normal variation, and it was hard to separate the signal from the noise. By the 90s, separating the signal from the noise became obvious. And, and then, of course, from then on, we've seen this. What we've seen is that even as scientists discovered that rapid climate change was actually the way climate changed and not slow and stately, um, what uh, one scientist said, the old model was a dial and the new model was a switch. Mm-hmm. Even as that became clear, um, uh, you know, climate was rapidly changing. All right. So then um, the second clock is the scientific clock right? Um, there's a structural lag because you have to gather data, you have to analyze it, and then you have to peer review and publish it. And it's at least a couple of years. Um, it can be accelerated and it has been. But what that means is that, you know, while is, science is trying to look forward, it's be ever, if, when climate is changing, it is forever behind the times because it is documenting changes. And then there's a structural lag between then and the time it can publish. The public um, was, this is a clock, I mean, it, it's uh, like something out of Alice in Wonderland because it can run forwards and backwards. Um, and, uh, you know, there was an initial pulse of awareness um, in, the, in the 80s. Um, and uh, in the late 80s, particularly, when it became mainstream, and, you know, I was at Time Magazine at the end of the 80s, and we were doing cover stories on it. We made it one of the main issues in our Planet of the Year issue, which was um, turned out to be a big deal at the time. Um, so there was, there was public awareness and, uh, that's why, uh, HW Bush, George HW Bush said, you know, the, talked about the white house effect, um, business and finance, um, Exxon, for instance, started doing, uh, research on solar in the in the eighties and actually in the seventies, I think after the oil embargo, um, then, of course, it learned very quickly that, it, um, you know, its, it's uh, breadbasket was uh, fossil fuels. And so it abandoned the solar stuff um, for a lot of complicated reasons. Um, and then joined the uh, various alliances fighting regulation. Um, so business and, 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 and I, I don't have a separate uh, clock for politicians because I think they're a derivative of the public and the business and finance community. Um, they've not never been leaders on this issue. Um, and there, and as we saw with that example of George HW Bush, they, um, who, who calls the shots? It was the business and finance community and not uh, public concerns. And I find it fascinating in, in your analysis of this, that it's 
it's true across presidencies. Yes, there may be a difference on attitudes towards regulation, certainly, between some of the modern Republican presidents and their Democratic counterparts. But you you cite the example of Bill Clinton, who certainly had a different point of view on it, but didn't feel that he was going to use the White House effect to lead on climate change, basically using the excuse, well, I'm constrained by public opinion. The public isn't there yet. Well, that's a real missed opportunity in the 90s, isn't it? Yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of a, a catch-22 situation. Um, I, was, I participated in his White House conference in the late 90s, and I, and I vividly remember him saying that, that, um, you know, I've, I'm, I'm with you. I agree with you. It's a threat, but I can't get ahead of the public on it. You know, so mobilize the public and then I'll do something, right? Okay, that's Clinton in the 90s. Um, but the same was true. Um, Gore, you know, global, his nickname was Global Warming um, and um, in the White House. And, um, and when he ran in 2000, barely mentioned the issue. Um, and I, um, I wrote a piece back then, tell us who you are, Al Gore. I, you know, I, and... After the election, I ran into him um, at backstage after he gave a talk uh, at the Beacon Theater, and I, I asked him about that, and he was very candid. He said, what about the UAW? And uh, the same thing with Kerry, our, now our chief climate negotiator. He, when he ran, he barely mentioned it. Um, at Brookings, uh, he gave a talk, and um, I had written something about that and I raised that as a question. And he, obviously someone had told him that I was going to ask him that because he went ballistic and said, no, I talked about it all the time. Hmm. Well, uh, bull twaddle. Um, <laughs> he, I, if you read any history of the, that election, nowhere does it say that he was championing climate change. And, but the tragic thing is, and I say this in, in the book, they were right. Their strategists were right. Mm -hmm. The irony though, is that, as you know, during a political camp, presidential campaign, the political reporters control the real estate. Mm -hmm. And so the science of climate change is going to be on page 27. Yeah. Had a presidential candidate, you know, made it a major issue who was leading, they would have covered it. But the, 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 uh, the presidential candidates who have made it a major issue have gotten nowhere. Uh, Steyer, um, the, the governor, Inslee. the former governor of yep. Washington. Yeah. They, you know, they, 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 they were championing the issue and they weren't getting anywhere with it, which is tragic. Yeah, the political dynamics are hard here because the excuse that's used, and I, and I think it is more than an excuse, it is an explanation, is, like you said, the UAW. Now, you could easily say to Al Gore or to John Kerry or to any candidate on that side, say, really? Uh, do, do, you think, do you think that most of those people that you're concerned about are going to flip and vote for your opponent? Um, when all the other political dynamics don't point that way, but they could make the counter argument and say, well, maybe not, you know, maybe there won't be 30% of UAW membership that votes for my opponent because of this, but there might be 10% who stay home and don't vote at all because they're pissed off. And that could be the margin in some of these close elections. So politically, they're not wrong, but policy wise, they're definitely wrong because they, they miss the chance to lead public opinion at a time when it matters. And they also look like hypocrites. Um, I, you know, Gore, everybody knew he, he was championing global warming. I think you're exactly right. The, the, it, it was inconceivable to me that a, a union member was going to vote for uh, George Bush, um, you know, a, a very anti-union 
kind of coming from a very anti-union part of the Republican Party. Uh, but fast forward to Biden. And now this is you know, 2020 when um, climate change is everywhere. We're seeing it right and left, the fires, the floods, everything. And he, in a debate, you know, makes a comment about uh, fracking and, uh, and uh, Trump says, thank you, you've just lost Pennsylvania or something to that effect. Right. And then the Biden's, you know, uh, talking heads go into full panic mode. Oh, I didn't mean it. it's the long transition, everything else. Mm -hmm. So even in 2020, yeah. you know, it looks like a third rail. Now, um, we had some real developments between the 1990s, 2000s that, that we started talking about. Yeah. And 2020. One of them that still strikes me as I don't like overusing the word tragedy, right? Because we cheapen the meaning of tragedy. Yeah. But when it comes to the global commons and when it comes to public opinion actually grappling with climate change, I think one of the true tragedies was the way that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, ended up. That its very structure and composition led to both deliberate mischief and lowballing of estimates about climate change. Talk through that a little bit. How, sure. how did the IPCC, which had promise initially, how did it go so downhill and actually lead to some of these dynamics we've talked about, uh, about the public not engaging on the very issue? I'll unpack it a couple of ways. Um, the first is, is that it was, it was put together um, to try and present the best science at any given point. And it's going to give these uh, periodic assessments, right? First assessment, 1990. The, what happened was that, you know, the, the, there's scientific chapters, and then at the beginning, and it, these reports are massive, like many hundreds of pages. And at the beginning, there's a summary for policymakers. And that's probably as far as anybody ever got who was not a scientist. Um, and then probably them, they didn't get that far. They saw the press release of the summary for policymakers and acted on that. But what happened was um, those who would delay action saw a couple of opportunities in this. One is that they were participants um, and uh, they could argue responsibly for caution, right? Let's not be alarmist. But the second thing is, is that scientists themselves are, are by nature not willing to go beyond the data. And in 1990, there wasn't a hell of a lot of data. There wasn't, um, there was a faction of uh, the scientific community that saw rapid climate change as a threat. Um, and and, and uh, Wally, uh, you know, Wallace Broker being a principal among them, been arguing about that for, for actually more than a decade at that point. Um, but the, the consensus was that, you know, there, it was slow. The consensus was, is uh most of the uh, heat, excess heat, would be absorbed by the oceans, and that thermal inertia would delay any signal of climate change well into the 21st century. Um, but the policymaker, uh, the, the the various uh, governments uh, and their and their uh, uh, representatives in the IPCC could also argue for um, moderating the language and. and and out of that, in the this the end of the summary in the 1990 assessment was about as lowball and ambiguous and hedged as you could ever imagine. It was no one was going to read it and jump out of their chair and say we're going to have um, 
we're going to have to act on this immediately. Right. Because the dominant message was we have time. And so back when we didn't have time, people were arguing we did have time. And now, of course, today when we don't have time, here we are. But what, let me give you an exact example of how this worked to slow action on climate change. So uh, one of the early economists, um, uh, who uh, a Yale economist named Nordhaus is working on the economics of climate change. Um, he looked at the IPC report, CC report, looked at this question of thermal inertia of the oceans, um, absurdly said, uh, because 87% of the US economy is indoors, it's not gonna be elect, uh, uh, affected by climate change and wrote a paper in 93 where he said uh, a three degree centigrade warming would might hurt the American economy by a quarter of a percent of GDP. Well, William Niskanen, I think yeah, the head of the Cato Institute back then, then takes that, goes to Congress, testifies and says, you know, we have time. You know, we have time to study this and it is gonna, it looks like it's not gonna have a big effect on the economy in any case. Um, now, of course, years fast forward, couple of years ago, Nordhaus gets the Nobel Prize for writing about uh, climate or for creating models that uh, try to bring uh, climate change into economic models. Uh, they were a problem in the early 90s. And the IPCC was a problem uh, that that problem persisted well into the 2000s, by the way, um, in uh, an assessment, I think it was 2007. Um, there were they eliminated any consideration of contribution from the uh, ice sheets, even as climate uh, melting ice sheets were contributing 40% of sea level rise. Um, and that became a huge brouhaha. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I think since then, the IPCC has been great. They've been, uh, they really have um, realized that if they don't sound the alarm um, about the constant, the threat and the consequences, nothing is going to happen. And I think they have really upped their game and caught up to reality. But at the beginning, they were not a help. Yeah, to the point that, as you characterized it, the IPCC reports gave plenty of ammunition to anyone who wanted to delay action on climate change, a group that turned out to be practically everybody, ranging <laughs> from the business community to the vast majority of world leaders. What a missed opportunity. Yeah, one of the things in the um, that came home to me is that um, business, as usual, has unbelievable momentum. Um, and one of the things I, one of the one of the reasons I wrote this book um, had to do with the how the perverse incentives of the way we do business blind us to long-term threats and how we basically have configured the perfect economy that's always going to not recognize long-term threats and drive off cliffs as a result. And the best example that I came up with was the insurance industry. And uh, this actually, um, it was this that prompted me to write the book, in fact. Um, I wrote a piece for Time in 1994 um, about how the insurance industry could be the white knight of climate change because there their their whole business model is based on understanding and recognizing risk and early on the reinsurance side the, the side of the insurance industry that backstops cat catastrophic risks realized that climate change posed an existential threat to the business let's go back a step there eugene yeah, okay. to to set the table because 
I think most people think they understand insurance, but it is a little bit deeper. And the, the reinsurance business you mentioned, I think, hits that for us because you've got the business of insurance agents, their affiliated companies, mm-hmm. then the reinsurers, then you've got the public funds and institutions that are set up to socialize the the risk even beyond that. So walk through each of those so that we understand what you mean by reinsurance and then explain how that came into play in the 1990s. All right. Well, at the retail end, um, an insurance agent gets paid writing policies, but not by writing policies. Um, He assumes or she assumes that the risks are in the pricing of the policies. Moreover, it's backward looking. In other words, their bonuses and uh, profit sharing are based on past performance. So you're incentivized to keep writing policies, even if you're heading you know, for a, a bad year because you're, it's retroactive, right? All right, and then of course, the uh, various components of the insurance chain pick up various slices of that risk. You know, so let's say the risk is 100 million. Somebody might pick up the first 20. Somebody else might pick up the next 40. And then the reinsured side will pick up the tail risk, right? Um, Now, they recognized early on that this was a threat and have done some of the best research, the best reports. I helped write and edit one of them on on climate change and and the various ways in which the risks will will surface. But at the retail end, um, I... uh, your incentive is to keep writing policies. And my mistake in 94, because the insurance industry did not turn out to be a white knight or a very timid white knight. Keep in mind, they were the heroes of the seatbelt. Um, they, they were pushing for seatbelt. They were pushing for electrical standards. Yeah. They were pushing for building standards too. Um, and they, so they, they have been activists when they've seen themselves at risk, but they weren't with the case of climate change. They, uh, reinsurers kept writing policies for coal-fired plants, and still do today some of them, up until just a couple of years ago for some of the major ones. Um, and they kept writing policies um, and uh, for people moving into harm's way um, in, in Florida and, well, in other coastal areas, in, in California and other fire zones, right up until the disaster struck. And again, and the, the, logic, it- the logic there, if I understand it, is that you're not, the, the policy, let's say you're, you're looking at the next year or two, you may be pretty sure based on the data you're getting that in the next hundred years, there's going to be a catastrophe at this location. But the next year or two, the percentage is actually pretty small. So the risk of the policy in the short term is not so great as to cause the insurance companies to, to immediately pull out. Yeah, that's exactly right. I made three mistakes back then. <clears throat> the first one was forgetting that insurance is a business um, and that the retail end is going to have enormous power. The second was misunderstanding the degree, the genius of the industry at spreading risks. Um, you know, uh, most insurance policies are renewable on a yearly basis. So if you, if you have a bad year and, and, and new circumstances come out, you have a bailout. Now, that turns out not to totally be the case because it's a regulated industry. Um, third, you can raise prices. And, um, and then fourth, and this is what happened. Hurricane Andrew in 92 bankrupted about 11 or 12 insurance companies. And it was just right. massive losses for the industry. 
And, uh, and so the reinsurance side said, you know, we better, you know, if you can't use past patterns for, to project future risks, you've got to do something. And one thing they decided to do was uh, Hanover Ray, a guy named Everhard Muller, I think was his name, came up with an idea called a cat bond, a cat catastrophe bond. And it goes to what you just said. Um, this is a, it's a bond that pays a very high coupon for assuming a risk, say that a category five hurricane is going to hit Miami um, in the next three years. So even if the risk has doubled from 1% to 2% because of climate change, it's still only one in 50 risk. And investors, it's for institutional investors who are the large buyers of these bonds, it's a, a terrific instrument because of the yield um, and because it's called non-correlated, meaning that you'll get paid has nothing to do with the market. If the market uh, has a crash, you're still getting your coupon because the, it is, it, it's correlated to weather, not an economic trend. Um, and so investors loved it for that reason. Um, because otherwise you'd say, why would I take a risk that these very smart reinsurers want to lay off? Well, you get paid for it. But what that did was it opened up the insurance uh, reinsurers to access to enormous pools of money well beyond their own capital. Um, and they could bring that in and offload some of these risks, which enabled to continue business as usual. And so the, uh, the things I expected to happen in the 90s never happened. They're happening now. Another reason, uh, and what the consequences of this are real. Um, tens of millions of people have moved into flood zones and fire zones even after floods and fires uh, became more prevalent. And what that means is that at some point there is going to be a crisis. And I feel that we have the makings of a climate economic crash that would be larger than 2008. And not only that, it won't be a one-off because it's not like that'll be something and then everything gets better because climate is only going to be getting worse. You know, I think the stands. three case studies that people have focused on in this regard at different times and with different degrees of concern are number one, uh, after Andrew, the incredible rebuilding we've had and expansion in the South Florida real estate market. The fact that there are so many, even in just the last decade, that there's so much construction in areas that all projections say will be uh, unlivable or livable with gills at some point in the <laughs> next uh, in the next few decades. Um, secondly, after Katrina, um, that New Orleans, yes, New Orleans has lost a significant percentage of its population from pre-Katrina right. days, but there's also been significant rebuilding and there was not a decision made to essentially abandon the city or parts of it due to the long-term difficulties of, of protecting it. And then third, more recently, the issue in much of central California in particular um, of the wildfires. And in each of these cases, what you don't have is a, what may appear to be a rational decision from afar to say, you know, this is not going to get better. It will probably get worse. And let's, find a way to relocate people so that they're out of harm's way and we don't have the societal costs of all of this. And instead, in each case, it seems to be a rebuilding 
with insurance companies, reinsurers, the securitization of you know the the risk, but then also things like the National Flood Insurance Program and other societal dis- distributions of risk. How has that ecosystem played out, even in those cases? where a lot of people look at them and say, well, surely they're not just going to rebuild there, are they? Well, uh, coastal Florida is the unique case in this. Um, I, well, it could be replicated in South Carolina, Georgia, and you know Alabama and such, but it is the hottest place in the country to live <laughs> long after um, it, you know, the sea level rise and uh, storm threats you know, have, have been recognized as not a replay of the past, but some new regime coming in. And the reason, uh, well, one, a lot of insurers did pull out of Florida. And of course, the state of Florida then stepped in. Uh, and of course, flood insurance is federal. There's very little private flood insurance, but federal. And so, and that's underpriced. And it, you know, it, it's not a, as easy a problem to solve as you can, as, as it seems on the surface, because as we pointed out, you know, the key, the Florida Keys is entirely a tourist economy. If flood insurance was priced to what it should be. Yeah. How do the and, workers uh, pay for living? They, there wouldn't be any yeah. workers and, and, yeah. and uh, the economy would collapse. Fair point. Um, so, I mean, it's not just about rich people moving in um, who don't really only care if they, you know, they, they want the next 10 years and they don't mind losing it after that. Um, so the, the federal and, uh, and, and then state backstops you know, are socializing that risk um, so that um, uh, they, now, you know, that the state fund in Florida, um, a couple of storms and it's bankrupt and then the taxpayers pick up the risk. Um, so it's, uh, you know, and un- unwittingly, by the way, uh, they're, they're probably not aware about it. California is a different case um, because insurers said we're out of here after the, the 15th fire. And um and then the regulator just said, not so fast, and put a moratorium on them leaving. Now, the moratorium expired, and the insurers then said, we're out of here. <laughs> and I'll, I'll give you a, an example of two cases I know about. Um, uh, one is firsthand. The other was uh, pu- published. Um, one uh, homeowner um, in the South California southern coast, um, when AIG pulled out, lost insurance. When... Uh, Looking on the private market to insure the two houses, the homeowner discovered that um, their earlier insurance had been like um, twenty-two thousand for uh, dwellings, you know, and contents with a uh, seventy-five hundred ten thousand dollar deductible. Mm. The first quote they got was two hundred twenty thousand dollar premium with a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar deductible. I heard of a, about a vineyard, and I can't wow. confirm this, where the insurance went from 100000 to a million a year. I also, the maker of the film, Don't Look Up, the director tweeted <laughs> that after the fires, he could not get insurance. And so there's what the makings of a crisis in California mm-hmm. because, you know, the affluent um, can self-insure. Yeah. But a lot of people have a mortgage, and and you cannot, in a, now you cannot get insurance for a mortgage without fire insurance in a fire zone in mm-hmm. California. So what are you going to do? Um, and many for middle-class people, most it's not they who own most of the equity in the house. It's the banks that own the equity. Mm-hmm. 
uh, let's say they have to leave. Let's say they're empty nesters, want to sell a house. They can't sell the house. Right. Let's say home prices drop as they did in the crisis, you know, 20, 25% or more. All of a sudden the bank has zero equity in that house or, or very little equity in the house. Mm -hmm. And uh, there you have the makings of a replay, a uh, daisy chain of repercussions, uh, you know, that uh, could cause another financial crisis. But it, uh, the Rhodium Group and New York Times and uh, uh, ProPublica did a, a study of every county in the United States for various types of climate risk. Um, and it came out in, uh, a year ago in the fall. Um, they used like wet bulb temperatures, absolute temperatures, sea level rise, floods, winds, all that stuff. There's an enormous number of counties in the United States, which will probably be uninhabitable by the middle of the next century. Mm -hmm. Um, and uninhabitable means not just that you don't want to live there, but you can't, who's going to buy your house. And trouble is that some of these counties are some of the more affluent counties in the country uh, because of the, they're the uh, the destinations. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, wet bulb temperatures, but um, it's a uh, you, you drape a wick over a thermometer, and it, you know the wet bulb temperature will tell you that the the uh, the lowest temperature at which evaporation can no longer evaporate fast enough to keep the temperature low. What that means is uh, you get beyond a certain point. And you can't sweat enough to keep your temperature uh, before low enough to pre prevent heat stroke. Um, so that's that's kind of an absolute limit on where you can live, mm -hmm. um, in, unless you don't go outdoors um, ever. And 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 so there are plenty of places in Louisiana, um, in the coast of the Carolinas, where wet bulb temperatures are expected. But that's not the only thing they're facing. Of course, they face sea level rise, increased storm risk, that sort of thing. So. Um, that is going to cause ultimately a uh, major shift in demographics of all these counties and, and places. And uh, the, there's going to be an enormous amount of losses for the local and uh, state and other banks. It's not. And the problem is, is by not recognizing this risk, we've put it off to make the risk that much larger. And one of the things that your framework of these different clocks illuminates is that moving past the 80s and 90s and getting to the the aughts and the the 2010s or the teens mm -hmm. i'm not sure we've come up with a societal term for them yet but that, that that there is a shift here first of all the reality of climate change is undeniable but even moving through the aughts into the teens the public opinion actually does start to change that people do start to recognize the need to address this issue even if they disagree on the, the degree uh, that it matters or the nature of the solutions. So talk through that a little bit. Talk through these frames moving past the year 2000 and how we get to where we are today before we start talking about where to go from here. Let's talk about the last couple of decades. Yeah. Um, I would say that after 2010, um, the signals of climate change became so obvious that most people recognized that things were changing. Now, keep in mind the COVID analogy, because once the issue is politicized, it's very hard to unpoliticize it. Um, and, and, and so the pollsters talk about what's called the issue public. In other words, is it a, a large, maybe a large portion of people who are aware of climate change, but 
they have to be scared enough about it to actually vote on it. And that's that public has been growing. But it is to me now, uh, Tony Leerswitz would say, it, you know, he thinks it's be, it's reached significant levels. I think that what we see um, going on right now, what we saw in the election and with Ukraine right now, uh, the war um, and all these calls for renewed drilling, for instance, um, shows you that uh, the it, it's not quite big enough to actually get past this. Because for me, the idea uh, that um, the response to the cutoff of 3% of Russian oil, which is what it contributes to the U.S., but um, is cause for some panic new drilling is absurd. Um, if you're dependent on Russian oil, which we're not, the last thing you want to do is become more dependent on Russian oil. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, uh, I, and, uh, but it, it, it's telling about what politicians see as the mood of the public. And let me add to this, I, I think along the same lines, the issue over the gas price itself, right? The, the yeah. endless images of the gas pump with the actual price per gallon on it without the context mm. of inflation and, you know, actual cost related to past costs. So there's that, but and also COVID. it doesn't capture the cost obviously of the, the fossil fuel industry and its effect on, on the climate. So you have a case where we've had these calls for more drilling. We've had these calls mm -hmm. even now, even as prices appear to have peaked in their initial war boom, you've got calls to release millions of barrels a day from the strategic petroleum reserve in order to keep gas prices even lower instead of using that as the trigger to say, we really need to move past this instead of digging ourselves in deeper. It seems right. like all of the things that we feel hopeful about in the last 10 years, about public opinion starting to shift, about the opportunity along with some of the things we'll talk about, the technological advances in renewables and things. But guess what? When you still have politicians saying, we need to be releasing millions of barrels uh, from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to keep gas prices even lower, uh, I just shake my head and say, we're not really getting anywhere. Well, we're, we're, we're not really getting it is the thing. I mean, the, the idea that drilling will help keep prices down uh, or help the uh, Europeans solve uh, the uh, loss of Russian gas is absurd. Drilling takes a while. Um, you want to solve, get gas to Europe? Uh, apparently, the Caspian Sea is the place to go. Not we don't have we don't have the terminals for LNG um, to actually expand. So the the level you know that when you when you say people are and and I agree that people are more aware of climate change, it is, is camouflaging extraordinary ignorance about what climate change is uh, even today. Um, the, a polling a couple of years ago. Um, it was asked, uh, what do you think the major cause of climate change is? This is just a couple of years ago. The, the answer that got the biggest number of people responding to it was plastics in the ocean. Wow. Um, it's almost like everybody categorizes, categorizes if it has to do with the environment, it must, it must, be, it must be the biggest environmental issue. Right. And that, that's proven because of a decade or so earlier, the same question was asked and the, the leading answer was the ozone hole. <laughs> so, you know, people are aware of climate change. They they don't have a clue as to what is actually causing it or 
or, 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 or what might solve it. Um, and that is, uh, you know, that that's a failure. It, it, the mainstream media has, has not been a failure. I mean, people have been writing about it forever. It's cover stories, specials. Um, you know, there have been 26 Congress of parties, right? And, and we've done nothing. And so it, it, it it's, uh, it's on us, basically. Um, you know, there's a level of the level of curiosity to actually sort of know a little bit about it just isn't there in the general public, um, even though it's changing. And that, that does not bode well for the future. You raise the issue of the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and what it means. And th this is where it really intersects with short term national security instead of just mm -hmm. longer term national security widely defined as the security of a habitable earth, which kind of counts as security. Yeah. But in the short term, when you have, in many cases, autocratic regimes doing things like invading neighbors or blatantly mm -hmm. violating human rights, and they're able to sustain that because of hydrocarbons, um, should you not, as a national security hawk, <laughs> want to reduce the ability of those adversaries of the United States to do such things. And instead, you hear some of the people who are the, the national security hawks saying, drill, 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 which seems to miss the point about what's financing these regimes. Oh, yeah. I mean, so we learn that we're dependent on homicidal psychopaths for uh, some percentage of our energy security. And we say, let's get more dependent on them. It, it's, uh, you know, it, uh, it, 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 it really doesn't, um, uh, you know, bear up. I, I think that this, the war, you know, it's a tragedy in many respects, um, but it couldn't have come at a worse time yeah. in terms of uh, yeah. trying to deal with what is a much more existential threat mm -hmm. to the entire com world community um, uh, down the road. Right. I know you continue to track the the economics of these issues very closely. And I'm wondering, we already talked about the insurance and reinsurance markets. What have you seen just in, in the last year or so that makes you think optimistically that the tide you thought could turn as early as 1994 is turning? And what makes you pessimistic that the market will always find a way to distribute risk and socialize the, the long-term costs of this? Yeah. Optimistic is that um, money has been flowing into alternatives big time. Um, for a while, a company, I can't remember the name of it at the moment, was uh, had a larger market cap than Exxon, um, and it was big in renewables. Um, and, you know, so money was flowing out of the major oil and flowing into renewables. Um, I give some examples in the book, a company named Plug Power, um, you know, went from a minuscule market cap to billions. That Those billions can be deployed. And it, if money's flowing into something, it gives it, you know, uh, de uh, deploying and, uh, and expanding and scaling up uh, renewable technologies requires capital. Well, capital's there now. And that's, I think, all to the good. Um, uh, what makes me pes pessimistic is that the the uh, the um, perverse incentives to continue built uh, business as usual are intrinsic to the system. 
Um, you know, that you know, they used to call it the system back in the 60s, and it really is. Um, you know, uh, there's a, a guy, Charles Rice, who uh, sort of had this uh, uh, meteoric rise and fall, you know, because he took the 60s too seriously and thought it was to transform society. But he had a brilliant quote, whatever, and, and it was that the elites don't run the system, they tend it. And he's right, because if you aren't on the profit side of any enterprise, chances are you're going to be marginalized at some point. Um, and the ones that are on the profit side are the ones that are going to get the capital and the attention. So yeah. I do think that um, we don't have a way of representing long-term threats and, and reacting to them. And long-term threats require collective action. Mm -hmm. We aren't configured for collective action. Yeah. I say at the end of the book um, that, you know, if we chose a path of libertarianism, mm -hmm. we are not going to address this problem ever. Um, there, you know, it, it, we're going to have to take an approach much more like Europe. But right? in 2008, the Germans, um, as I understand it, um, they didn't lay off people. They reduced hours for all of all workers. And one reason they did it was that workers had representation on boards. Right. Um, and, and that's a way of representing longer term interests of the society and of the of the employees. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what will happen. The trouble is, it probably won't happen without a crisis, is that, um, you know, our politics are going to change um, right now. Um, you know, somebody used the phrase that one of the reasons that, uh, you know, people who are, are vote against their own political interests and economic interests in the Midwest the sort of what's wrong with Kansas argument is that everybody sees himself as a future millionaire. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and that's probably true, but at some point, um, things get, things get, uh, get rough. Um, you, you like safety nets and, uh, and, uh, at, at some point, the trouble is, is that we tend to go overboard in any direction and, uh, there's no reason we wouldn't go overboard in, in, uh, in the other direction. I, I actually have a couple of ideas about how we might get out of the fix. I, well, let's you, let's jump right into those ideas because right. the idea, I mean, there are ideas that have captured the public imagination sometimes for uh, the, the duration of a news cycle only when a headline yeah. hits, whether it's carbon capture, that there's, there's some announcement of uh, technological advance. Renewables seems to be one of the big ones. Um, it was just a couple of years ago, I think our most recent data that renewables accounted for around 20% of power generation in the US and actually equaled the contributions of coal and nuclear for the first time. And then last year, globally, renewable energy, which includes solar, wind, hydro, and, and nuclear included in that, accounted for some 38% of the world's electricity. And it was the first time that globally renewables, including nuclear, were ahead of coal. So there, there is a growth curve here on renewables. And that's one of the things that a lot of people have focused on. So talk about that one, but then add in the others because you have some other ways of thinking of a way forward that are right. worth, worth consideration here. Yeah, and one other statistic, last year is the first time that uh, wind and solar accounted for 10% of uh, electric power generation. And what that tells you is that these technologies are technologically significant. Um, oh, and, and by the way, um, solar grew by 300% in Vietnam last year. And the reason is, and this is something we, we might have talked about earlier, because 
One of the things that happened in the late 90s, early 2000s that really promoted the use of renewables in Europe mm -hmm. and is now being used today was feed-in tariffs. Talk about those, because uh, feed-in yeah. tariffs are something that hasn't broken through the public consciousness to the same extent that even the term carbon capture has. It, it just it, it's a way of financing, um, you know, of, of guaranteeing a, a set return to investors um, in, 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 an, in an energy complex, whether it's wind or solar, down 30 years. And what it does is it, 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 it makes it, uh, one, attractive to investors, but it also makes it deployable immediately. And Germany uh, pioneered them, and then they've extended everywhere. They're not in the United States yet. Um, the, uh, I'll start with the, um, the policy side of what I think needs to happen, because what we've seen through 26 Congress of par uh, uh, parties and the Kyoto process, everything else, is that those who would delay action love these processes because of endless negotiations, um, uh, just are perfect for delay and splitting hairs and finding exemptions to doing this. And so out of this, our experience over the past 26 years, I've come up with what I would say are three design features of what we need to do if we're going to deal with this crisis. Um, and the first is that the, uh, it has to be collective. Everybody has to be in it. No exemptions. Oh, I would exempt any economy in the world under $2 billion because it's insignificant to the problem. And almost all of them are small island nations are getting screwed by climate change anyway. Right. All right. Really? But that, that, that's an easy exemption. But it has to be collective for every, every, uh, every economy. That's 160 nations without the 20 or so that are under $2 billion. The second thing... It has to be simple. Uh, anything where you're where you're negotiating, it, as we've seen, is 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 not going to get done. Um, and the third is it has to be deployable now. In other words, we have right. to have the institutions and the and the structures that where it can be deployed immediately once we agree on doing it. And my idea on that side is tariffs, a universal tariff. Now, uh, Europe is already talking about a climate tariff, and there's all sorts of and that. Piecemeal, that's a trade war thing, and you know, it can be used for comparative advantage. Universal tariff cannot be used for comparative. And, 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 and I would say that we now have the ability to monitor uh, greenhouse gases from uh, national point uh, sources, and probably even finer than that. Um, the, so you set a target, and we actually, we have to reduce greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It's not enough to get to zero increases. We've got to reduce. Uh, so you set a target like 3% a year. And if you meet that target, uh, you, there's no tariff. If you don't meet that target, there's a tariff. could be administered by the WTO. Um, the rich nations, it could be redistributed to help the poor nations do it. And I, the reason I think that is a doable thing is that, um, like, take China. I've, I've had some discussions on this. China is, a, a year or so ago, it was the 11th worst energy efficient economy on the planet, Oof. which means that it has low hanging fruit mm -hmm. that can be profitable. Amory Lovins, who founded the Rocky Mountain Institute, says that um, energy efficiency has produced 30 times the carbon reductions of renewables from 1995 to the, and now that's going to change in the future because renewables are now exploding, but um, it produced a lot. The reason it did that was Everybody loves efficiency. It saves you money if you're a homeowner, it lowers your costs. A business, if you become more efficient, increases your profits. 
China has a huge opportunity to uh, decrease uh, the energy intensity of its economy at, and make money doing so. So I think it would be on board. A lot of the developing nations would be on board as well. Um, Brazil could meet a target just by stopping illegal deforestation, something it should be doing anyway. Um, and it also, if, if, the, if it's a national number, you get internal policing. In other words, in exporters in uh, Indonesia, exporters in Brazil are, not, are, are going to be wanting Brazil to police so that they don't face this whatever tariff it would be. Um, all right, so that's the policy side. I think, um, you know, now everybody hates tariffs, but the idea of a universal tariff might have more appeal, particularly if regional tariffs are going to come into play anyway. Because what businesses, if they see that somebody has some advantage, they want, it to, they want to level the playing field, which is why airlines and other people sometimes invite regulation. They don't want piecemeal. It's why the automakers wanted a standard across the country uh, because they didn't want one auto mileage standard for California and another for other states. So right. I think we'd actually get some uh, consensus behind the universal tariff. How do you get there if you're a developed nation where you're already fairly energy efficient? That's where, well, a couple of things. Um, you know, obviously you expand renewables. Now I'm going to mention what I consider to be a technological um, advance that just could be a game changer um, in the sense that it could it, it could actually uh, over over time bring out tens of billions of tons of carbon. It's a renewable. Um, and until recently, it's been a dream. And it's called deep geothermal. Um, a lot of people have tried it, but it's expensive to drill deep. Um, because what you hit is what's called basement rock, which is granite or base uh, basalt with you, you know, a few miles down and it's five to 10 times harder than sedimentary rock. So you getting through it is tough. Um, a group out of MIT um, had the wit um, to team up with drilling expertise. It's a hundred years of drilling expertise in the oil industry <clears throat> and is using what's called millimeter wave beams, which are used to create plasmas. These are out of the plasma lab at MIT. They vaporize rock. They claim, um, and they've been vaporizing rock at MIT apparently since 2007, so the technology does work, um, that this, what they can do is instead of it taking 10 or 20 years to drill, drill to 12 miles, they can do it in 100 days. Hmm. They have a pilot project they're going to be doing next year, and then they plan and two wells next, the year after. Why do I think this is so significant? Because temperatures, once you get down there, are 400 and 500 degrees centigrade everywhere. In other words, it doesn't matter where you drill, you're gonna hit those temperatures. Um, and what that means is you can retrofit any plant that uses steam turbines to generate electricity. In the United States, that's 61% of all plants. Hmm. Um, and most of those are fossil fuel fired, whether it's gas or coal. Um, Globally, it's 75 to 80% of all plants. So think about that. Um, the plants there, the steam turbines there, the only thing that would change is the source of the steam. Um, and uh, the, the head of this uh, company, it's called Quays Energy, um, claims they could do this in 100 days. They could drill a hole that deep 
and that the cost of energy all in um, the, between drilling costs, retrofitting and everything else, uh, or if, if, if it's greenfield, the cost of energy is one to three percent, three cents an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's retrofitting, it's half that. Mm-hmm. That cost per kilowatt hour is lower than any fossil fuel, lower than any alternative energy. What have so? What have investors thought of this so far? Because it's a it's it's a startup. It's just getting attention. Right. Um, it's been shocking it's, to watch something like the the valuation of Tesla. You know, right. or, or companies oh. that haven't even produced something yet that have market capitalizations that are through the roof. And you wonder, you know, is there going to be a bubble bursting on a lot of this? Oh, well, I think in, in some of those valuations, there definitely would be a bubble bursting because um, with Tesla, you know, um, with, since everybody's getting religion on electric, you've got companies like Toyota and GM and Ford and everybody else, and they're all getting in the game. Um, but uh, with this, there's no bubble. It's a private company. But, you know, what I'm, the, I argue the negative of COVID earlier, right, uh, in terms of uh, uh, blaming the messenger rather than seeing the truth. There's a positive to COVID as well in this regard. Think about the vaccine. Um, the previous vaccine took seven years to get to approval stage. We got to approval stage in a year, a little more than a year. Um, with extraordinarily with, effective vaccines. And extraordinarily effective. Yeah. I mean, if this idea is real, um, you've got 100 years of drilling technology that you're taking advantage of, and you've got a proven you know, p- uh, plasma technology. They're, they're using the millimeter wave, not the, not the plasma. Uh, a company in Germany is apparently using plasma to do deep drilling, um, but it's not, a, not as cheap. Hmm. Think about this. You've got the components. Um, think about how fast you could scale. If that, if that actually takes up. And think about the amount of carbon that you would be offsetting, uh, which is tens of terawatts, not just gigawatts. Right. So that's one thing. Um, and then, of course, taking carbon out of the air. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, you can combine carbon with calcium to make uh, synthetic limestone, hmm. which it, and limestone can then be a component, a carbon sequestering component of concrete, mm-hmm. which is an, at, at the moment an enor- enormous uh, contributor to global warming, or steel, which is 8% of uh, GHG emissions. Um, a guy at MIT, again, uh, came up with a way of making steel by running an electric uh, current through iron oxide and other metals with zero emissions, right? Um, and that's 8%. So there are these technologies that are actually being there are existing technologies with new applications is the way to think about it. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to invent anything. The problem with the deep geothermal that has to be solved is just scaling up. And scaling is always, you know, uh, it's not never a sure thing. But I mean, these, what it shows you is that the human ingenuity can play a role here. If we, one of the indictments of my book is that if we say that the only reason that we have a wealthy society is fossil fuels. We're basically, uh, you know, giving a raspberry to human ingenuity and saying it was luck, not human ingenuity, that caused us to become the most powerful nation on earth. Um, and I think human ingenuity, when once focused, as we saw with COVID, mm-hmm. you know, can really exceed anything. And one other data point on that, um, the, uh, 
Robert Sokolow at, at Princeton, who came up with the notion of wedges. And the notion of wedges is like 15, 20 years ago. He said, in order to stop climate change, think of these wedges of a billion or two billion tons of carbon that you have to take out. And so like, uh, so say deep geothermal would be 10 wedges. So what he said uh, to me was that when he was writing that, um, coming up with that idea, he never expected that uh, renewables would expand to the degree that they have. And one of the reasons they have, um, particularly EVs, is has nothing to do with EVs, but the smartphone. The battery technology, uh, right? The battery technology yeah. for the smartphone, then of course is upscaled for the, and so hmm. there are a lot of people who are looking at these things and thinking, how can I reapply what we already know? And oh, by the way, that technology for making steel mm -hmm. without a, a coal, it's decades old. The reason it never was adopted before was coal was so cheap. Right. So if we ever really had burdened fossil fuels and coal with their true costs to the economy, <laughs> Those things would have been cheap long ago. Well, you're making me feel a bit better about this um, because, yeah, let's look at the wedges. And the way I picture it is like the uh, the old Trivial Pursuit game with the circle and the various right. triangles fitting into it. And let's say you have six or eight of these wedges. And on a couple of them, they're act we're actually doing better than he projected. So um, renewables and on some others, not so much. And I think... Yeah. Where, where I, I remain a bit of a skeptic and I want you to pull me out of it so I don't start crying in my hands <laughs> is on, on two fronts primarily. Uh, one of them is the cascading effects that are the hardest to predict and understand, but, but we're starting to fear whether it is the more rapid loss of ice sheets, whether it is the permafrost, um, whether it's a better understanding of what's going to happen to cloud cover and albedo and reflection of sunlight. It seems like a whole lot of those dynamics are all going in the negative direction, that it's not just a straight line projection of greenhouse gases to temperature rise. It's, it's a cascading effect. Um, so that's one wedge that I fear is, is, is getting worse. The other one is really about China. I mean, there are a few others, but really about China, which is just pumping insane amounts of greenhouse gases out largely due to the fact that coal is still relatively cheap. So on those two fronts, how I need you to convince me that the negative side of those wedges um, aren't going to overtake the positive side of the wedges you just mentioned. Um, I can't make that argument. I mean, I, I agree with you I, because we don't know what these tipping points are. Um, in which case melting permafrost becomes self-reinforcing and you get runaway global warming. Uh, back, the, the, one of the tragedies, again, of the 90s was um, they were arguing that the tipping points were like five degrees centigrade. Um, and now where we're that much closer, the argument, oh, maybe they're two degrees or three degrees centigrade. And so it's, uh, you know, th that is an incredibly serious problem. Um, and it's, it's permafrost, it's, I mean, the ice sheets, uh, a, a very rapid collapse. I'm, I'm still optimistic that, yes, they're contributing more and more and more each year to uh, sea level rise, but it's, I, I don't see a catastrophic event in um, the next decades. I just see, uh, uh, I mean, a, 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 an accelerating rate of increase. 
Um, permafrost, I have no idea and nobody else does uh, because there's another thing, uh, not to make your day even worse, but um, it's undersea uh, permafrost yeah. It's uh, yeah. that, that people are just learning about that traps billions of tons of methane. And um, if it ever released, uh, again, would could cause a, a methane burp, uh, which could wipe out life on Earth, yeah. not to... Well, gee, thanks a lot, about it. Well, but I, well, let's talk about China. Yeah. Um, China is, it seems like it's one thing, but it's not. Um, it is the leading adopter of renewables at this point. Um, and uh, it's also going to be a big victim of climate change. Um, it's already Shanghai is suffering flooding events uh, more frequently. It's got thousands of miles of coastline that it can't fortify and knows it. Um, and a lot of the wealth is concentrated near the coast. So it realizes that climate change is a serious, serious issue. Um, that's why I think this universal tariff, for instance, and we've been using carrots only. We need to use sticks. Um, and um, that's, you know, that the universal tariff could be a stick. If somebody has a better idea that could be deployed now and it's simple, I'm all for it. Um, but I mean, China obviously has to be part of any future thing. Um, and if and if we don't get a universal tariff and it turns out to be uh, trade sanctions on China, <clears throat> an export economy, you know, so be it. But it, it is obviously the largest by, a, a, it's two times more emissions than the US at the moment. It is one of the ball games. India, of course, can't be discounted. It's number three in emissions. And it, you know, as its middle class gets rising, Yes, Riser. The, the problem is very daunting just because of the, as I said, the two and a half billion more people than there were in 1990. That's a wedge, too. Uh, it's a, a kind of nega wedge. Right. Um, but I, you know, I do think that there is hope that we could have this radical transformation in terms of the source of electricity. And uh, one thing that um, uh, Carlos Iraq, uh, who is the uh, CEO of Quaze, points out is that all the other renewables require electricity to make. And if you can make them with zero emissions, mm -hmm. you're way ahead of the game mm -hmm. um, in actually deploying other renew renewables like wind where it's, where it's best or solar where it's best. Right. So um, d dealing with the production of electricity will be an enormous uh, leg up for the world if we can manage to accomplish that. Right. Well, let me compliment you on uh, an immensely readable and important book, Fire and Flood, A People's History of Climate Change from 1979 to the Present. But we're not going to end there because we always end our podcasts with a reach into our chatterbox oh, okay. <laughs> to pull out a random question. And yours today, Eugene, is if you could give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be? Say yes to the things I said no to. Oh, oh, oh. without getting too personal. Uh, <laughs> no, no, this, this is career-wise. Any, uh, any of them coming to mind? Was there a regret <laughs> of something you passed up the opportunity to work on early on? Well, um, way back when, um, uh, this hedge fund tycoon, Titan, uh, when I was in my 20s said, uh, you know, Come work for me for five years and uh, you'll have all the money you'll need and you can go back to writing your books. And I said, no, hmm. 
Then I kicked myself for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> but you did some good work in those five years. And the, you know, I, I don't regret it, but uh, I mean, I, it would have been interesting had I said yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, Eugene, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for writing this book and, and the rest of your, your body of work. And uh, thanks for coming on Chatter with us. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.